Mm-hmm. Well, comrades, it's uh, Sunday evening uh, and uh, online communist forum organised jointly by Labour Party Marxists and CPGB. And we've got uh, a week in politics by Jack Conrad for the Provisional Central Committee. Jack, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I suppose uh, predictably I'll begin with um, Batley and Spen. Um, last last week we were speculating uh, about the the result. Uh, this week we've got it um, in front of us. Um, I mean, quite frankly, um, unless you were there, you wouldn't really have had that much idea. I know we had a an opinion poll about five weeks ago, um, but um, I, you know, haven't got a clue how the campaigning went, other than the sort of misreporting um, in the mainstream um, media. Um, anyway, the result. Um, well, the first thing to say is that, um, in objective terms, this was not a bad result for the Tories. Um, here you are, a government midterm, and um, this is when you usually expect um, sitting governments to be punished, nearly winning um, a seat uh, that the Labour Party held in 2019 and has held, obviously not since the crack of dawn, but nevertheless has been a... Um, a safe, I think that's reasonable to say, a safe Labour seat for some considerable time. Um, and, um, of course, you had the Matt Hancock uh, factor. Um, so what's the result? Um, let's look at it. Um, Labour Party on 3519 uh, percent the Tories on 34.33 uh, percent so what's that well I'm told that that's uh, let's get it right 323 votes um, different um, so yeah clearly um, the Tories thought that they were going to win and they thought they were going to win I suspect not simply because of um, Hartlepool and you know the previous uh, victories in the so-called Red Wall, uh, but also because George Galloway uh, threw his hat um, um, in, and um, clearly he was going to split voters away, uh, not from the Tories, not from the Liberal Democrats, but uh, overwhelmingly. Um, from the Labour Party, in particular, uh, the so-called um, Muslim community. Um, and indeed, that was the case. And um, far from getting um, 6%, which would have been a good result, uh, that was the um, opinion poll uh, that we'd all uh, read. Um, yeah, far from that, um, he got a, a, a far better uh, result, you know, around about 20% uh, um, um, of the poll, about, I think it was about 8,000 8, uh, votes. Um, so yeah, from 6% initially, uh, yeah, here's the figure, 21.87%. Uh, 
uh, percent um, uh, of the vote. So clearly he conducted a, um, an incredibly successful uh, campaign um, for all that the Labour Party says about divisive and um, um, all the rest of it. I think basically what George Galloway and the Workers' Party did is, is stand. And um, from what I can gather, um, you know, they were not uh, using uh, divisive uh, tactics. What they, what they were doing is raising uh, the perfectly legitimate uh, uh, question of Palestine, which clearly matters uh, uh, to Muslim uh, voters. Here you are. Here's a, an officially Jewish state backed by the West uh, that's engaged in a colonial settler project um, on land that is traditionally uh, being occupied by um, Arab uh, Muslims. Well, yeah. And he had the cheek to raise uh, Kashmir. Uh, and he had the cheek to um, basically say Keir Starmer must go. Well, I can't really think myself, you know, how that's meant to be illegitimate. And I, I don't doubt for one moment that some Labour uh, canvassers um, had some eggs thrown um, at them, but this is hardly the sort of level of, of violence uh, that um, Kim um, led uh, Beater's uh, sister Joe Fox, Joe Fox, Joe Cox uh, uh, faced. And, and of course, that was what uh, the Labour Party was attempting to play up. That's that. That's the sort of uh, resonance that they were hoping uh, to achieve with talk of intimidation and um, you know violent. Uh, tactics. I mean, I, I saw the little video of somebody uh, questioning her um, forcibly, uh, but hardly, um, you know, using intimidation. And that gets blown up, um, you know, and it turns out anyway that this person had nothing to do uh, with um, George Galloway. Um, you know, wasn't brought in by George Galloway, um, was simply um, voicing his uh, concerns about uh, sex education um, in schools from a conservative uh, Muslim point of view, which, of course, uh, George Galloway, um, given his um, professed Catholicism, is in a very um, good place to um, echo, to chime uh, with, but perfectly legitimate uh, when it comes to politics, surely. Anyway, um, of course, it isn't being uh, treated as a, um, a stunningly good performance by the Tories. Uh, it's um, being treated as a, um, a stunning victory um, for the Labour Party, and in particular, of course, uh, Keir Starmer. And what this points to, to me, and this is, this is really the background uh, to this by-election, is we are living in extraordinary times. Uh, all this press chatter and quite frankly it, it, that, that is something you can hear on the left um, in the Labour Party as well uh, that Keir Starmer is useless um, you know hasn't got a distinct message blah 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 really misses the point uh, that um, with the 2016 referendum and then the 2019 general election and on top of that uh, the COVID uh, pandemic, that the normal rules of politics are at, at the very least um, um, 
you know, they've been suspended. Uh, we're not operating according to the normal rules, i.e. a midterm election does not normally go like this. And it's not because of Keir Starmer. It's because of Brexit and Boris Johnson getting Brexit done. So precisely, uh, uh, Batley and uh, Spen voted heavily um, uh, to leave. And uh, that makes it interesting, I suppose, um, that it voted um, subsequently Labour in 2017 and 2019. Uh, but here's a by-election and by-elections have lower turnouts and one would presume, you know, more politically motivated um, voters on average than would be the case uh, when it comes to a general um, election. Either way, uh, you then add um, COVID um, on top of that. Now, it's it, it's no doubt the case, and uh, I would be saying it along with everyone else, that when it came to the initial phase of um, COVID, uh, the British government headed by British jo by uh, Boris Johnson, British Johnson, the British government headed by Boris Johnson acted in a criminally uh, complacent uh, fashion. Uh, it was no different in that sense uh, to the administration of um, George Bush. What am I doing this? Am I going mad? Donald Trump. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm getting Alzheimer's. Um, no, anyway, Donald Trump um, in in the United States. So these aren't normal times. That That's the, the thing uh, to grasp. And uh, of course, given that people were expecting because of the opinion polls and the split in the Labour vote, um, a Tory victory, uh, the fact that Kim uh, led uh, Beta uh, one, albeit by uh, a very, very narrow uh, margin, uh, is being treated, as, as I said, um, uh, as some sort of um, Labour victory. You know, Labour is back. Uh, now we've got, um, you know, the the work that really begins and um, um, all the rest of it with uh, Keir uh, Starmer. OK, so given how narrow it uh, was, it's just you know, uh, enter a hypothetical uh, universe. Uh, the Labour Party narrowly loses it. Um, what would have happened? Well, for, for what it's worth, uh, I was never convinced uh, that, um, you know, Labour loses up here in uh, Yorkshire and um, Keir Starmer then falls on his sword and uh, resigns and uh, triggers a leadership election. And of course, in a leadership election, um, you don't need 40 parliamentarians uh, to back a candidate um, for a Labour leadership. I think you need 20. I think that's how the um, arithmetic works. Well, given its present state, I'm utterly convinced uh, that the left, you know, whoever they fielded would uh, win. Um, much more likely uh, it would be that they find, uh, you know, um, a seat, scrabble around for a seat for um, Andy Burnham um, or, or someone else. Um, uh, either way, um, the point I would make is I don't think that he would have resigned. The pressure on him uh, would have been there, uh, but I don't see him, um, you know, uh, resigning uh, because of that. He didn't resign over Hartlepool. I didn't see him resigning. Um, over Batley and, and, and Spen. Okay, so the left's um, um, big idea 
um, is really that uh, uh, Keir Starmer um, is useless, uh, that someone else uh, would be uh, better. And, um, you know, according to Diane Abbott, um, if only Keir Starmer had kept to his pledge, which he never was going to do, uh, to uphold the uh, policies of the 2019 general election manifesto. If he'd done that, if he'd followed that advice, of course, what uh, that would have resulted in uh, is basically the treatment that um, Corbyn got of wall-to-wall media hostility, of, um, you know, um, a witch hunt um, uh, against him. I don't know what over, but, you know, he's got a, a left-wing past, hasn't he? Whatever it would be, um, uh, they would be portraying uh, Keir Starmer not only as useless, uh, but as poison. Um, and I think that l the left really need to learn that lesson. You know, there they are without their own media, uh, without their own, you know, education, uh, without actually um, educating uh, the population, Labour voters, in, you know, what to expect uh, from our opponents, which wouldn't just be uh, name calling, you know, when push comes to shove, if they'd actually uh, succeeded with uh, Corbyn, of course, what you would have got is uh, Mike Pompeo's uh, pushback, uh, if not um, Chris Mullins' um, very British uh, coup. Um, anyway, let's leave that um, aside. Um, the most notable uh, fact, you know, from our point of view in terms of this by-election is, of course, the, um, you know, the victory of uh, George Galloway um, and uh, the Workers' Party. Um, now, if, if we thought uh, in the CPGB uh, that um, the Workers' Party represented um, a step, you know, however um, falteringly, um, however imperfectly, you know, towards a mass communist party, uh, then it would certainly be worthwhile uh, backing uh, George Galloway um, on the, you know, in the election on uh, July uh, the 1st. Um, but it isn't, uh, and it, it doesn't. Um, yes, within the Workers' Party, I don't know how um, it's organised, I don't know the structure um, of the uh, Workers' Party, but we know who the deputy leader uh, is we know what her politics are uh, we know where the cadre uh, of that organization come from and it comes from the communist party of great britain wait for it marxist leninist which is um you know pro china pro north korea uh, pro zimbabwe under mugabe um and of course above all uh, pro uh, jv stalin um that's really what marks them um, out. Um, here's an organization that was not Maoist in terms of its origins, but anti-revisionist. It goes back uh, to the global um, opposition um, amongst a section of official communism, a, a global opposition to Khrushchev uh, that particularly manifested itself in the early 1960s. So not the cultural revolution of 66 um, onwards, uh, but the first break uh, between the Soviet Union uh, and China, um, which saw, for example, 
the Soviet Union uh, backing India against China in their border um, uh, uh, dispute. Um, so the, 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 this, this dispute um, produced organizations in India, for example, of a very sizable nature, at least in terms of numbers, um, Communist Party of India, Marxist, which was the governing party in uh, West Bengal and uh, is traditionally the governing party in uh, Kerala in the south of the country. And in Britain, it produced a whole myriad of um, tiny, tiny uh, little groups amongst them. I can't remember what the original name was, but it could have been something like the Communist Workers Association. I'm sure it's had plenty of names, but led by um, a guy called Harpal uh, Bra. Okay, now in terms of this uh, election, um, given that um, Galloway was standing on a Starmer out uh, position, there had been some um, on the left, either openly um, or um, using various formulations, um, who've wanted to back uh, Galloway on the basis of their main slogan, Starmer out. And so you had, for example, the um, Labour <laughs> campaign <laughs> for free speech. Uh, coming out and saying we're not going to uh, back um, the Labour Party on uh, July uh, the 1st. To me, this shows a profound strategic disorientation. It's not that the project for socialism, in our view, um, relies on uh, the Labour Party, but as a strategic aim, at least we and the CPGB put forward the idea of transforming the Labour Party into a united front uh, of a special kind, a permanent united front. And uh, the example that um, immediately comes to mind in terms of, um, you know, um, our tradition is the Soviets in Russia, which contained all uh, working class um, organizations, crucially working class parties, and they disputed in the Soviets and they fought for influence. Uh, in the Soviets. And so what we call for in the Labour Party is the return um, of the Labour Party to its original conception, its original united front conception. Uh, so the Labour Party was not only established by trade unions and the co-op, um, it was also established and crucially, um, you know, providing ideas and uh, um, activists, it was established uh, by Britain's three most important socialist uh, societies. The Fabians, who are the smallest, a sort of bourgeois socialism, an elite uh, socialism with people um, such as Bernard Shaw, H.G. Uh, um, uh, Wells, um, and people like that. Uh, the Webbs, uh, of course, Sydney and Beatrice. Uh, but also uh, the Independent Labour Party, which had a, a real uh, base um, um, up in um, Yorkshire and uh, Lancashire, uh, but also the Social Democratic Federation uh, led by Henry um, Heinemann, which uh, went on uh, to become the British Socialist Party, which went on uh, to become the Communist Party of Great Britain um, July the 31st to August the 1st, 1920. 
Um, and of course, when the CPGB applied to affiliate, as the BSP had been an affiliate, I think, since 1916, the Labour Party, the Labour bureaucracy, turned around and said no. And no matter how many times the Communist Party applied to affiliate, it was voted down um, uh, at Labour Party conferences. And worse, uh, what the Labour bureaucracy initiated is a whole series of witch hunts uh, designed to drive out um, individual Communist Party members who had quite legitimately at the time a dual membership. And also what they uh, imposed is um, a ban on Labour uh, members supporting communist candidates. So it's worth noting uh, that um, amongst the first communist MPs in uh, Britain, uh, there were communist Labour um, MPs or communist MPs backed by uh, the local constituency uh, Labour Party. That's what we want to um, um, refound. Um, um, in terms of the Labour Party, we are against bans and prescriptions. What we want uh, is a situation, not only can the CPGB affiliate, uh, but all other uh, left-wing um, um, organisations. Uh, that's our perspective. So we don't believe that the Labour Party, unlike our friend uh, 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 Tony um, Greenstein, we don't believe it is a united front of the of a special kind. Today, uh, we are fighting uh, for it to become a united front of a special kind in the future. That's the point. But the crucial question for us um, is a mass communist party. And what we mean by that isn't a sect. Uh, we believe in open debate. Uh, we believe in the right of minorities uh, to publish their views uh, if they see uh, uh, fit. Um, um, so we, we would abide uh, by the principles of democratic centralism, not bureaucratic uh, uh, centralism, when everyone is meant to um, you know, speak in a uniform way um, in public and only express their differences, um, political differences um, in uh, private. The last thing I just want to deal with is this, we can't possibly vote Labour because of this uh, statement by um, a senior Labour source quoted by, uh, is it Dan Hodge in the Mail on Sunday, um, when this senior Labour source, I don't think anyone actually knows who this senior Labour source is, whoever it was, they said, well, the reason why we are hemorrhaging uh, votes from the Muslim community, as they did, um, is because of Keir's stance um, on anti-Semitism. And some on the left, I think, um, over-extrapolate from this as the Labour Party accusing anyone who's um, backing George Galloway of um, anti-Semitism or something like that. I just personally, um, I find that quite a stretch. Um, it's certainly true that there were politics going on around that issue. Um, uh, but um, to me precisely, um, that's either um, um, an objective statement of fact, because of the reasons I've already alluded to, I, George Galloway championing um, the rights of Palestinians, most of whom happen to be uh, Muslims, but also the issue of uh, Kashmir, 
And it's just worth noting on that score um, that uh, the Labour Party uh, itself issued a leaflet directed at, against the Tories. Um, I don't think that was a very effective le leaflet, but showing uh, Boris Johnson shaking hands with Modi. Uh, what's the significance of that? Well, as you would see from the rest of the leaflet, uh, this was um, directed um, against the Tories on the basis that they are Islamophobic. And if you wanted to pick one country that you might say is the most um, Islamophobic country on the planet, uh, it isn't Israel. Uh, it's India, uh, the BJP. Um, that's the basis of their ideology. Uh, they believe that India has been conquered and suppressed, uh, not by the British. Uh, they were mere um, fleeting um, visitors. <laughs> it's the Muslims. It's the Muslims. This is what the BJP uh, uh, says. Um, and it, the fact of the matter is that India, I think, actually has the largest um, Muslim population um, in the world. It has a bigger, popula bigger population of Muslims than does, uh, uh, for example, Pakistan um, it, itself. You know, we saw the division in the Raj by the British. Pakistan was meant to be Muslim. India was meant to be Hindu. Well, yeah. OK, uh, let's move on. Um, what next? Heat wave, you know, um, heat, heat dome, um, fires uh, raging, temperatures of what? Let's look at it. 49.6 degrees centigrade. Well, I'm of the generation that centigrade doesn't mean very much. I know what naught is and I know what 100 um, is in between. I'm a little bit hazy. So I've written down for the benefit of um, other old fogies, what that means in Fahrenheit, and um, that translates as 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, this is in British uh, Columbia. Uh, it affects the um, north um, northern states of uh, the United States, um, such as Washington and um, Oregon. Um, but yeah, we've seen, you know, people um, evacuated, um, you know, from their homes in order to be cooled down. Um, we've seen fires, as I've said. Um, and, you know, uh, in terms of a lot of uh, climate scientists, they, they've, they've said, well, this is sort of unexpected as far as we uh, were concerned. And I'm not going to go into because I haven't got the knowledge the exact uh, physics um, um, of it, but it seems to be that uh, if you get a, a temperature um, um, of a certain um, um, intensity, plus the stillness of um, weather patterns, what happens in is heat is drawn in uh, to that area uh, rather than if the um, um, weather is moving, um, um, it simply gets uh, dissipated. So you have st a stillness um, um, in terms of the weather pattern and the buildup of heat. Well, this is the sort of heat, you know, 49.6 degrees centigrade that you would expect, um, you know, in the Middle East out there in the Sahara. Um, I understand at the moment there was a similar heat wave in Pakistan, 
um, but Canada, uh, this is uh, quite uh, incredible. And as I understand it, you're, you're seeing similar uh, events, not quite as intense um, um, in uh, Siberia. And the explanation now uh, that um, is being you know, um, used um, as far as I can see by um, climatologists and um, weather forecasters and uh, all the rest of it, people who know, um, is that this is a, a once in a, you know, a hundred thousand years sort of event. If it wasn't um, for humans uh, burning huge quantities of fossil fuels, if it wasn't for humans going in for cattle um, uh, ranching and um, um, other such um, 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 activities uh, that clearly add uh, to the global uh, temperature. It's worthwhile saying um, in that context that um, I can't remember the name of the institute, but there's been a um, an issuing of a, uh, a map, a world map, um, basically saying that if present trends continue, a dangerous um, proposition, but nevertheless, it, it, it does serve as a stark uh, warning uh, that if present trends continue in terms of global warming, um, the Earth's um, oceans will rise and we will see um, 410 million people um, in terms of where they live at present displaced. Now, the authors of this uh, study um, freely admit uh, that this is a pretty crude, um, you know, broad brush approach. Uh, they say quite explicitly that this doesn't take into account uh, flood uh, defences. Um, so it, it is simply a question of taking where the sea is now, uh, taking it up a metre or whatever the particular um, prediction um, is and showing what floods and the pictures I've seen are goodbye to Denmark, goodbye uh, to the Netherlands, goodbye to quite a lot of um, East Anglia um, in, in England, uh, but also um, in terms of who's going to be affected by it uh, most severely, it's places like Indonesia, um, Nigeria, uh, and of course, uh, Bangladesh, which is very low-lying. Um, 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 and in terms of Bangladesh, I'm not saying it completely disappears, uh, but you are dealing with huge numbers of, uh, of people. Um, so no doubt, um, uh, if sea levels keep rising, you would expect the uh, Dutch or the, the authorities in the Netherlands uh, to simply raise the um, height uh, of um, dikes. Uh, they have the money, um, they have the technology, uh, but that does not apply um, to Bangladesh. And indeed, given the size of Bangladesh and the smallness uh, of the Netherlands, you have to ask whether it's a, a practical project uh, um, anyway uh, for countries such as uh, Bangladesh or, or Nigeria. Um, I, I would say that it, it's uh, simply not a practical uh, proposition. So this would displace um, huge numbers of people. And crucially, um, what, it, um, what it does is it, it disrupts 
um, life. It, it um, destroys agriculture. Uh, this is the, um, the land uh, that would be uh, lost. Where do these people go? Well, they will just be looking to survive. Uh, it would be nothing more than, than that. Um, and of course, you know, just finally on that sort of question, uh, what we need to understand about global warming is it isn't a straight line. We're not dealing with if present trends continue, it gets hotter and oceans simply rise. Uh, what you should expect, and again, climate scientists would explain it better than I can, is what you expect at some point is a qualitative shift. A qualitative shift in um, weather patterns, in climate uh, patterns. So for example, uh, it's conceivable uh, the, the Gulf Stream that keeps uh, Britain uh, with a moderate climate could be switched off. Uh, at the same time, uh, you could see extremely rapid melting um, of the Arctic and extremely rapid melting um, of the Ant Antarctic region, but also uh, the melting of the permafrost in Siberia and in um, uh, Canada and the release uh, of all sorts of, um, uh, you know, greenhouse uh, uh, gases, not just CO2, uh, but methane, and uh, uh, which is far more um, dangerous when it comes um, to our climate. Anyway, I'm saying this not just because these uh, events have been reported, but because in November we've got the COP um, 26 in Glasgow, where we should expect uh, plenty of hot air, no pun intended, uh, from uh, world uh, leaders. Um, should we expect any real action? Well, given how real, um, you know, climate change is, I think we have to say that we should expect action. We should genuinely um, expect um, action. Uh, I mean, I'm of the generation in London that can remember the transition away from coal, uh, because in London, when I was very young, uh, there used to be regular smogs, you know, London particulars, um, huge pollution. Um, London is in a bowl and um, smogs would build up, um, not least um, because of um, coal um, heating in, in homes and thousands uh, would die um, every day uh, because of um, smog. So the Tories were pressured and they, they were pressured. They didn't want to do it. They were pressured into passing the Clean uh, Air Act, which again, I can just remember as a kid, first of all meant uh, no coal, uh, but only coke. Um, we used to have a horse that used to deliver our uh, coal. And then they banned coke and you had to go over to electric or gas um, um, heating. Um, so we should expect um, uh, governments, uh, yes, to, you know, transition away from um, coal um, generation of electricity. Uh, we should expect a lot of other uh, measures. But the real question I would pose is, do we think that capitalism is compatible, um, you know, with a balanced um, relationship with our environment on planet Earth. And I would simply say, no, capitalism uniquely 
uh, is predicated on, you know, use the famous phrase, you know, production for the sake of production, accumulation for the sake of accumulation, not need. And we know, of course, that there are loads of needs that aren't catered for uh, in the world. But from our point of view, from a communist point of view, we also know that there are all sorts of artificial needs. You know, the advertising industry, the banking industry, the insurance industry, the arms um, um, industry. So um, from our programmatic point of view, we want to go over uh, to a system of production that is sustainable uh, in relationship to our natural uh, environment. And that can be done um, uh, on the basis of need, uh, whether it can be done on the basis of the pursuit of profit. Um, I'm extremely uh, skeptical um, um, of, I mean, uh, and I would argue that the chances are very slim. Um, and of course, what we're risking uh, if we keep back in capitalism um, is potentially uh, the breakdown of civilization, potentially descent into uh, barbarism and who knows what, I mean, you know, will the human species survive um, such a catastrophe? It's quite sensible uh, to at least raise uh, the possibility of human um, um, extinction under those circumstances. So what we uh, um, do, of course, is to back protests and uh, conferences and uh, all the rest of it up in Glasgow and in London and other parts of the world. But crucially, from our point of view, uh, our message is that protest politics aren't enough. And I think most protesters, you know, in Extinction Rebellion and other such organizations actually know that. Uh, they're not stupid. They know that what they're doing is highlighting uh, a question. Uh, they're not uh, delivering answers. But if we rely on the likes of Johnson, the, the likes of Joe Biden, um, then I think um, the chances are uh, that in 20 years' time, um, we could actually see um, a climate flip um, and uh, face all sorts of um, unpredictable and disastrous uh, consequences. So th the socialist project, building a party, um, having a strategic um, sense uh, of the way forward, I think is vital. Uh, and simply going from one protest to another uh, however admirable, um, clearly isn't enough. We need on the left a viable project. And to make that viable, it shouldn't just aim and it cannot just aim, of course, to come into power in one country. It has to be an international movement. And the only um, force that's capable of um, mounting such a challenge is the working class, the working class organized into a party, um, into a, a communist um, international. Okay, two other points. Uh, 39. Okay, two points. Very briefly, um, I'm going to not eat my hat, uh, but if I had one, I sort of would. Um, and that's my prediction that uh, with Brexit, the British car industry uh, was more or less over. Uh, that's That's really what I thought. And then, hey, we have the announcement from uh, Nissan um, about their uh, uh, big investment uh, in Sunderland with um, electric engines and a similar announcement 
announcement, excuse me, uh, from Vauxhall vis-a-vis -vis, um, Ellesmere uh, Port. Um, now why, why is this happening? Um, well, it's not despite me, that's uh, for certain. Well, uh, my guess would be uh, it's two main factors. One is state aid. Uh, we know, uh, I don't know how much, but we know that there's state aid involved. Does this go against what would have been EU rules? I suspect so. Um, and the other factor uh, will be um, Britain's anti-trade union uh, laws. I mean, car plants used to be hotbeds of uh, militancy. Um, that's no longer uh, the case. And so in terms of um, so-called industrial uh, relations, uh, we have a situation where effective trade unionism uh, is no longer uh, possible. Trade unions can argue in courts, um, they can argue in employment uh, tribunals, uh, but they don't argue anymore um, in the form of strikes. And uh, strikes in the car industry in Britain um, used to be numerous and um, could be happening. Um, you know, many times a day, um, simply short uh, strikes, you know, someone gets sacked, someone gets disciplined, the shop steward says, right, we're going to stop, the management come down, sort it out, and it doesn't even get recorded in... Uh Okay, chat's got a bit of uh, a bit of usual. Right, now, there you are, John. You're back. I don't know how long I disappeared. No, not only briefly. Okay, Cut. thanks. Cut. I don't know what I don't know what goes on with this uh, particular machine. Anyway, I'll uh, simply simply add this footnote to that uh, particular question. I do think that electric cars uh, are one of these pseudo solutions. Uh, to the environmental crisis that I've just been discussing. To me, they exist at the same level uh, as, um, you know, shooting up dust uh, into the atmosphere, uh, putting, you know, giant reflector uh, panels out into space. Uh, the fact of the matter is they might use electricity and they can even use electricity generated, you know, by wind farms and um, solar panels uh, but they consist of metal, rubber, plastic, um, rare earths um, with um, present battery uh, technology. Uh, what we need to be doing uh, if we want a real solution is not only to break uh, with capitalism, um, but also capitalist culture. Um, and that would include car culture. And that brings us to the whole question of the design of cities, the design of work, which I'm not going to go into now. OK, lastly, this is a sort of follow up uh, piece to um, uh, last week, um, just talking about the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party of China. 
Uh, you can read uh, all manner of different articles, either celebrating uh, the Communist Party of China um, from the official communist uh, uh, movement, uh, but you can also read in the Times, in the Telegraph, in the Daily Mail, what a horror um, um, China has been, what a horror uh, the Chinese Communist Party was and is. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about an article in Socialist Worker uh, by uh, an authoritative uh, spokesperson uh, for the SWP, uh, its leading thinker, i.e. Um, Alex Kalinikos. He's got an article um, under the following um, headline, China's Champions of State Capitalism. Okay, so far, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's go with it. Anyway, basically what he does, he looks back to 1921. I can't know how many delegates there were um, in Shanghai. Um, how many people, you know, voted to form the Communist Party of China, but it was a few handfuls. It was no more than that. And he says, wow, look at it now. It's nearly got 92 million uh, members. It's the biggest political party in the world. As I understand it, that's not quite true. The BJP, I think, claims a little bit more, but I suspect that the membership criteria of the Chinese Communist Party is a little bit more um, onerous. You, you know, under discipline. I don't think members of the BJP would be. Anyway, that aside, it's huge, isn't it? I mean, 91, 92 million members, huge, huge uh, party. Anyway, he, he goes through um, the history that uh, we know of, you know, the massacre of um, Shanghai uh, communists in 1927 uh, by the... Um, leader of the Guomintang, the KMT, Kang Chai Chek, and um, the retreat of the communists uh, out there into uh, rural areas, you know, the formation of the Red Army, the establishment of um, uh, red bases, uh, which are basically states um, out there in the remote parts of China. Some of us have heard of the Eighth Route um, Army uh, when they retreated from one red base area uh, to another even more remote uh, area, but also how the um, Communist Party of China, along with, I can't remember when it changed its name from the Red Army to the People's Liberation Army, but how they fought a combined war um, against not only the K KMT and warlords, uh, but also Japanese uh, imperialism, which invaded um, China attempted to conquer China, I think in 1935, they'd already taken over Manchuria and then they invade um, um, China and attempt to conquer it. And um, um, it's not only resistance from the official government, there's also resistance from the Chinese uh, Communist Party and their armed forces. Um, Either way, we all know that then we have Mao Zedong, um, you know, announcing the formation of the People's Republic of China. I think it's October the 1st, 1949 um, in Beijing. And then Alex Kalinikos gets into what I consider more interesting territory because he says uh, that the aim of Mao and his comrades was not working class self-liberation. Um, it was to uh, build up China, 
uh, to make it into a, uh, a country that was no longer going to be dominated uh, by imperialism. And quite frankly, I can go along um, with that. Uh, it's quite clear uh, that in terms of, you know, um, Chinese politics, uh, the period of, um, you know, the late 19th century, right in uh, to um, the first half of the um, uh, um, 20th century, um, is one of national humiliation. Uh, China was bullied, China was divided, China was exploited, um, and basically, uh, the program of the Communist Party of China was never again, never again will we allow that to happen. And that's their big, um, how should you put it, um, to use a phrase, uh, I don't like the phrase, but big selling point uh, to the Chinese masses that under us, um, you've had unity, you've had stability, <laughs> relatively speaking, in terms of outsiders. Um, and indeed, of course, in modern times, um, huge rise in living standards. Anyway, uh, Kalinikos um, goes in and says, well, what they were doing was uh, using the, um, the peasantry um, to, um, they extracted surplus from the peasantry in order to build a military industrial uh, complex. And he quotes an author um, who's called um, Isabella uh, Weber. And I, she's a German um, who's just published a book which is called How China Escaped Shock Therapy. And um, this is a highly praised book um, amongst um, academics. And uh, again, I find myself um, in, in a position where I'm not going to argue with that thesis. Um, it, might be, it might be the case. It might be the case that um, they extracted... Um, surplus from the peasantry. The reason I'm hesitant in um, simply going along with it is that my studies uh, on the Soviet Union, um, you know, the first five-year plan, which was meant to be based on the exploitation of the peasantry, as it turns out, um, that didn't happen. Uh, that what actually happened is it was the exploitation of the industrial workforce uh, that supplied the surplus uh, that then went in to build up industry collectivization through agriculture back and prevented the peasantry going on grain strike, but it didn't supply a surplus. So maybe that was the case in China. I'd actually have to look at the empirical evidence to go along with that. But as a thesis, it's quite reasonable. It's quite reasonable in a peasant dominated country uh, to basically go in for a primitive socialist accumulation, call it whatever you will, obviously a phrase borrowed from uh, Marx, but then adapted in um, Soviet conditions by, first of all, Bikarin, I think, um, and then Trotsky and uh, Priyabozhensky and Pleitikov, um, and then Stalin um, in 1928-29. Okay, so, so, so far, no problem. Um, then, he, then he deals with uh, Deng Xiaoping and um, what he calls marketization and opening up. And again, I've got no um, argument, but that's simply a fact uh, that after um, 1976, uh, when Deng uh, emerged um, as the um, senior leader 
um, the communes were broken up, you had individualized agriculture. Also what you had is in the main Chinese capital coming into mainland China from Hong Kong, from Macau, uh, but also Chinese uh, capitalists in Southeast Asia. Again, none of that's um, you know, controversial. Um, and then of course, and I think this is the crucial uh, moment, is that in December um, 2001, China joins the World Trade Organization. And um, this um, is a crucial uh, event because China um, uses that to integrate itself uh, with uh, global capitalism. It goes on to become the workshop um, of the world and uh, it, it um, experiences staggering growth rates and uninterruptedly staggering growth rates of about 10% a year. And we see a sort of corresponding rise of um, uh, incomes of ordinary people. We see the emergence of not just millionaires uh, in China, I'm talking about dollar millionaires, but billionaires um, um, in uh, China. Anyway, this is the point I really want to come to is for Alex Kalinikos, in spite of these breaks, uh, that I've just described, you know, the breakup of the communes, um, the, the influx of Chinese capital and then global capital, the integration in uh, to the global capitalist economy following um, uh, 2001. Uh, Alex Kalinikos describes the country, the regime, um, as state capitalism, as the title um, of it, uh, of the article suggests, all the way through. Um, so he, he's not able, um, to me at least, to explain, well, why the change? Um, how did this impact on Chinese society? Now, what I would um, um, emphasize is that you have clearly seen a change. Um, it's a complex change, but you've gone from a situation of where, just as in the Soviet Union, there was not wage labor. Um, as we would um, um, understand it. You know, people had to work, you had to deliver yourself uh, to an enterprise, either in the countryside, in the countryside, you, you know, you would, in the, you would be in the commune. Um, in the urban areas, you'd be allocated to um, uh, an enterprise. Uh, you weren't paid wages, we would understand it. Um, and there was the, uh, the iron rice bowl uh, policy. Uh, that everyone was being fed. Um, that was the sort of um, Garrett will leave the great leap forward and all that stuff aside. But the point I would uh, uh, emphasize, um, having said that there was this break, is that we also need to understand that things develop from themselves. That if you take SWP theory, um, things develop because of outside factors. So the Soviet Union is uh, state capitalist, not because you can locate anything capitalistic about it internally. There isn't. Anyone who's read uh, Tony Cliff's book will know that. It says there's no trace of capitalism inside. It's the outside forces. And Kalinikos basically uses the same method uh, to begin with state capitalism in 1949 because they've got this project of building an industrial military complex to defend themselves. And he sees the situation up to the present day as the same. Uh, it's almost as if you explain how uh, a chicken hatches out of a, um, an egg uh, 
uh, and you say, well, it's obviously external circumstances. Well, it has to be the warmth there. That's certainly true. Um, you know, there has to be a situation, nothing's um, coming along, hitting it with a hammer. That's true. But things develop from themselves. You know, no matter how many stones you put underneath a chicken, it's not going to hatch into a chicklin et, is it? It has to be an egg. It has to be a fertilized egg. So we need to understand China according to its own laws of movement. And we need to understand this transition in China um, according to its social economy and uh, not simply um, make a, an assumption and, you know, plonk on some sort of um, um, label that shows how distant you are from it. Then the question, of course, arises, OK, what do I think um, that China is? Well, quite frankly, I'm not in a position um, to say. Um, I know it's not socialist. I can say that with, um, and I mean by socialism, by the way, the transition to communism. Um, I mean that by working class control, um, the spread of democracy, um, stuff like that. I don't just mean the nationalization of the means of production. In China, you've got a complex uh, position. Clearly the state uh, still plays the crucial role. Um, it's not the billionaires uh, that constitute the ruling elite. Um, you might say that the ruling elites serve uh, the billionaires, uh, but in, in terms of this uh, writer, Isabel um, Weber, um, who's quoted by um, Alex Kalinikos, her thesis um, is straightforward, and that is that the Chinese leadership are using market forces, are using uh, global capitalism, um, actually uh, to develop China as a stable global power. Um, that's her thesis. So it's not that the um, Chinese leadership is subordinated to the accumulation of capital. Uh, the thesis at least she's putting forward is the accumulation of capital is subordinate to state needs. Now, for any Marxist, I'm talking about a real Marxist, not pseudo-Marxists, this isn't outside our um, thought patterns. It's certainly outside our patterns if we simply look to Das Kapital, uh, you know, volume one, volume two, and for that matter, theories of surplus value. But if you look at the writings of Marx, he was a lot more sophisticated uh, than many uh, people who claim to be uh, Marxist. And I'm not saying he's right, but if you look at his writings on the so-called Asiatic mode of production, if you look at his writings about uh, different civilizations, he's well able to recognize that the state can play an independent role or even a dominating uh, role uh, over the economy. So we don't need to debate whether um, his writings about the Asiatic mode of production are right or wrong. They are wrong, <laughs> simple as that, they are wrong. But in terms of being able to think along those lines, uh, that is not un-Marxist. Um, that is something that Marx was able to say, well, that's clearly quite possible. Indeed, uh, we know in terms of history, uh, the role of um, state ownership um, of uh, the means of production going right back. And indeed, in the writings of Marx and Engels, they actually say, well, perhaps the first form of property was state uh, property, not private property, you know, as in Engels's um, private property, you know, the family, state and all that sort of type stuff, but state uh, property. Okay, 
the, di the big difference, um, um, therefore, uh, with the early Soviet Union um, isn't, therefore, um, the existence of um, rich individuals or, for that matter, the domination of the economy uh, by capitalism. Uh, up to 1928, the Soviet Union could be described, um, if one wanted two words, uh, could be described as an example of capitalism. I mean, I wouldn't uh, do it myself. I'd add all sorts of qualifications because I think it's a lot more complex than that. But if you look at uh, the countryside, which accounted for the vast bulk of the population, um, it was sowing um, seeds, harvesting grain to sell on a market, much of it to the state with state prices, but that was done on the basis of um, um, not need, not state orders, uh, but individual um, decisions with rubles and all the rest of it. And in industry, you also had wage labor. Workers would go from one um, enterprise to another, um, um, and relations within the enterprise, in spite of having very strong trade unions, uh, were still essentially no different um, than they had been under, under capitalism, but you didn't have any capitalists. You had capitalism in terms of trade. Um, so again, it's a complex society. And I, I really do think myself that what the left needs to do, because this isn't some obscure question that's dealing with ancient history, uh, this is the world's most populous state. Um, it's the state that potentially, I'm very sceptical, could in 10 years time, 20 years time, 30 years time, I don't think it's guaranteed, but it's far from something you would rule out, uh, actually equal the United States in terms of GDP for real. Um, obviously, China's got a population, what, three times larger than the United States, so that still doesn't make China an advanced uh, a country doesn't make it the dominant country, but clearly this is a central question, and it's a central question not least because a lot of uh, former official parties that were aligned to Moscow are now aligning themselves with um, uh, China, and you can read commentary, um, the more silly sort, which tell you that the Chinese Communist Party let into its ranks in 19, whenever it happens to be, or was it 2000 and something, capitalists but they don't make up very many um, of the 91 million members. They, they're an inconsequential percentage, as if that then solves the problem. It doesn't, because the point about capitalists isn't that there are millions and millions of them. The point about capitalists is they have, as with the um, famous John Hartfield poster with Hitler, I have millions behind me, uh, i.e. Marx, money. That's what makes capitalists uh, powerful. So this is a very complex uh, question and it needs to be dealt with in its complexity and that takes study. Um, it doesn't take this sort of approach of uh, Alex uh, Kalinikos, which is profoundly un-Marxist from beginning to end. The emphasis or the reliance on external factors, uh, the refusal to study uh, or to account for um, in any meaningful way, uh, the breaks uh, that there's been in um, uh, Chinese political uh, economy. And the crucial question is, uh, where is China uh, going? And the point here I'd finish with is that we need to understand such social formations as not being fixed, as not being um, some sort of mode of production, you know, akin to feudalism, slavery or capitalism, that we need to understand these social formations along with the, the old Soviet Union, 
and along with modern capitalism, and I would argue, um, with the idea that society is in transition towards socialism, is in transition to communism, but hasn't got there. And we see in this transitional period, this global transitional period, all sorts of hybrid social formations. Um, you know, the, the role of the state we should expect to uh, increase. Indeed, in China, clearly, well, in terms of my argument, you've got the domination um, of the state, the continued domination of the state, not the domination of capital. Um, so it's a complex question and it needs better uh, answers than um, Alex Kalinikos has given or better answers than um, the new prostitutes that are springing up everywhere on the left that are following the Chinese line or the idiot um, bourgeois uh, commentators um, who can't really uh, grasp anything as far as I can see. That's it. <laughs>